Chapter 8 of The Home and the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Home and the World by Rabindranath Tagore. Translated by Surendranath Tagore. Recorded by Valli. Chapter 8 Nikhil's Story. Paragraphs and letters against me have begun to come out in the local papers. Cartoons and lampoons are to follow, I am told. Jets of wit and humor are being splashed about, and the lies thus scattered are convulsing the whole country. They know that the monopoly of mud throwing is theirs, and the innocent passerby cannot escape unsoiled. They are saying that the residents in my estates, from the highest to the lowest, are in favor of Swadeshi, but they dare not declare themselves for fear of me. The few who have been brave enough to defy me have felt the full rigor of my persecution. I am in secret league with the police and in private communication with the magistrate, and these frantic efforts of mine to add a foreign title of my earning to the one I have inherited will not, it is opined, go in vain. On the other hand, the papers are full of praise for those devoted sons of the motherland, the Kundu and the Chakravarti Zamindars. If only, say they, the country had a few more of such staunch patriots, the mills of Manchester would have had to sound their own dirge to the tune of Bande Mataram. Then comes a letter in blood-red ink, giving a list of the traitorous zamindars whose treasuries have been burnt down because of their failing to support the cause. Holy fire, it goes on to say, has been aroused to its sacred function of purifying the country, and other agencies are also at work to see that those who are not true sons of the motherland do cease to encumber her lap. The signature is an obvious nom de plume. I could see that this was the doing of our local students. So I sent for some of them and showed them the letter. The BA student gravely informed me that they also had heard that a band of desperate patriots had been formed who would stick at nothing in order to clear away all obstacles to the success of Swadeshi. If, said I, even one of our countrymen succumbs to these overbearing desperadoes, that will indeed be a defeat for the country. We fail to follow you, Maharaja, said the history student. Our country, I tried to explain, has been brought to death's door through sheer fear, from fear of the gods down to the fear of the police. And if you set up in the name of freedom the fear of some other bogey, 
whatever it may be called, if you would raise your victorious standard on the cowardice of the country by means of downright oppression, then no true lover of the country can bow to your decision. Is there any country, sir, pursued the history student, where submission to government is not due to fear? The freedom that exists in any country, I replied, may be measured by the extent of this reign of fear, where its threat is confined to those who would hurt or plunder, there the government may claim to have freed man from the violence of man. But if fear is to regulate how people are to dress, where they shall trade, or what they must eat, then is man's freedom of will utterly ignored and manhood destroyed at the root. Is not such coercion of the individual will seen in other countries too? continued the history student. Who denies it? I exclaimed. But in every country man has destroyed himself to the extent that he has permitted slavery to flourish. Does it not rather show, interposed a master of arts, that trading in slavery is inherent in man, a fundamental fact of his nature? Sandeep Babu made the whole thing clear, said a graduate. He gave us the example of Harish Kundu, your neighboring Zamindar. From his estates, you cannot ferret out a single ounce of foreign salt. Why? Because he has always ruled with an iron hand. In the case of those who are slaves by nature, the lack of a strong master is the greatest of all calamities. Why, sir, chimed in an undergraduate, have you not heard of the obstreperous tenant of Chakravarti, the other zamindar, close by? How the law was set on him till he was reduced to utter destitution. When at last he was left with nothing to eat, he started out to sell his wife's silver ornaments, but no one dared buy them. Then Chakravarti's manager offered him five rupees for the lot. They were worth over thirty, but he had to accept or starve. After taking over the bundle from him, the manager coolly said that those five rupees would be credited towards his rent. We felt like having nothing more to do with Chakravarti or his manager after that. But Sandi Babu told us that if we threw over all the live people, we should have only dead bodies from the burning grounds to carry on the work with. These live men, he pointed out, know what they want and how to get it. They are born rulers. Those who do not know how to desire for themselves must live in accordance with or die by virtue of the desires of such as these. Sandeep Babu contrasted them, Kundu and Chakravarti, with you, Maharaja. You, he said, for all your good intentions, will never succeed in planting Swadeshi within your territory. It is my desire, I said, to plant something greater than Swadeshi. I'm not after dead logs, but living trees, and these will take time to grow. I'm afraid, sir, sneered the history student, that you will get neither log nor tree. 
Sandy Babu rightly teaches that in order to get, you must snatch. This is taking all of us some time to learn, because it runs counter to what we were taught at school. I have seen with my own eyes that when a rent collector of Harish Kundus found one of the tenants with nothing which could be sold up to pay his rent, he was made to sell his young wife. Buyers were not wanting, and the zamindar's demand was satisfied. I tell you, sir, the sight of that man's distress prevented my getting sleep for nights together. But feel it as I did, this much I realized, that the man who knows how to get the money he is out for, even by selling up his debtor's wife, is a better man than I am. I confess it's beyond me. I'm a weakling. My eyes fill with tears. If anybody can save our country, it is these Kundus and these Chakravartis and their officials. I was shocked beyond words. If what you say be true, I cried, I clearly see that it must be the one endeavor of my life to save the country from these same Kundus and Chakravartis and officials. The slavery that has entered into our very bones is breaking out at this opportunity as ghastly tyranny. You have been so used to submit to domination through fear, you have come to believe that to make others submit is a kind of religion. My fight shall be against this weakness, this atrocious cruelty. These things which are so simple to ordinary folk get so twisted in the minds of our B.A.s and M.A.s, the only purpose of whose historical quibbles seem to be to torture the truth. I'm worried over Pancho's sham aunt. It will be difficult to disprove her, for though witnesses of a real event may be few or even wanting, innumerable proofs of a thing that has not happened can always be marshalled. The object of this move is evidently to get the sale of Pancho's holding to me set aside. Being unable to find any other way out of it, I was thinking of allowing Pancho to hold a permanent tenor in my estates and building him a cottage on it. But my master would not have it. I should not give in to these nefarious tactics so easily. He objected and offered to attend to the matter himself. You, sir? I cried, considerably surprised. Yes, I, he repeated. I could not see at all clearly what my master could do to counteract these legal machinations. That evening, at the time he usually came to me, he did not turn up. On my making inquiries, his servant said he had left home with a few things packed in a small trunk and some bedding, saying he would be back in a few days. I thought he might have sailed forth to hunt for witnesses in Pancho's uncle's village. In that case, however, I was sure that his would be a hopeless quest. During the day I forget myself and my work. As the late autumn afternoon wears on, the colours of the sky become turbid, and so do the feelings of my mind. There are many in this world whose minds dwell in brick-built houses. They can afford to ignore the thing called outside. 
but my mind lives under the trees in the open directly receives upon itself the messages borne by the free winds and responds from the bottom of its heart to all the musical cadences of light and darkness while the day is bright and the world in the pursuit of its numberless tasks crowd around then it seems as if my life wants nothing else but when the colours of the sky fade away and the blinds are drawn down over the windows of heaven then my heart tells me that evening falls just for the purpose of shutting out the world to mark the time when the darkness must be filled with the one this is the end to which earth sky and waters conspire and i cannot harden myself against accepting its meaning so when the gloaming deepens around the world like the gaze of the dark eyes of the beloved then my whole being tells me that work alone cannot be the truth of life that work is not the be-all and end-all of man for man is not simply a serf even though the serfdom be of the true and the good alas nikhil have you forever parted company with that self of yours who used to be set free under the starlight to plunge into the infinite depths of the night's darkness after the day's work was done how terribly alone is he who misses companionship in the midst of the multitudinousness of life the other day when the afternoon had reached the meeting point of day and night i had no work nor the mind for work nor was my master there to keep me company with my empty drifting heart longing to anchor on to something i traced my steps towards the inner gardens i was very fond of chrysanthemums and had rows of them of all varieties banked up in pots against one of the garden walls when they were in flower it looked like a wave of green breaking into iridescent foam it was some time since i had been to this part of the grounds and i was beguiled into a cheerful expectancy at the thought of meeting my chrysanthemums after a long separation as i went in the full moon had just peeped over the wall her slanting rays leaving its foot in deep shadow it seemed as if she had come a tiptoe from behind and clasped the darkness over the eyes smiling mischievously when i came near the bank of chrysanthemums i saw a figure stretched on the grass in front my heart gave a sudden thud the figure also sat up with a start at my footsteps what was to be done next i was wondering whether it would do to beat a precipitate retreat bimala also was doubtless casting about for some way of escape but it was as awkward to go as to stay before i could make up my mind bimala rose pulled the end of her sari over her head and walked off towards the inner apartments this brief pause had been enough to make real to me the cruel load of bimala's misery the pliant of my own life vanished from me in a moment i called out bimala she started and stayed her steps but did not turn back i went round and stood before her 
Her face was in the shade. The moonlight fell on mine. Her eyes were downcast. Her hands clenched. Bimala, said I, why should I seek to keep you fast in this closed cage of mine? Do I not know that thus you cannot but find untrue? She stood still, without raising her eyes or uttering a word. I know, I continued, that if I insist on keeping you shackled, my whole life will be reduced to nothing but an iron chain. What pleasure can that be to me? She was still silent, so I concluded. I tell you truly, Bimala, you are free. Whatever I may or may not have been to you, I refuse to be your fitters. With which I came away towards the outer apartments. No, no, it was not a generous impulse, nor indifference. I had simply come to understand that never would I be free until I could set free. To try to keep Bimala as a garland around my neck would have meant keeping a weight hanging over my heart. Have I not been praying with all my strength that if happiness may not be mine, let it go? If grief needs must be my lot, let it come, but let me not be kept in bondage. To clutch hold of that which is untrue as though it were true is only to throttle oneself. May I be saved from such self-destruction? When I entered my room, I found my master waiting there. My agitated feelings were still heaving within me. Freedom, sir, I began unceremoniously, without greeting or inquiry. Freedom is the biggest thing for man. Nothing can be compared to it. Nothing at all. Surprised at my outburst, my master looked up at me in silence. One can understand nothing from books, I went on. We read in the scriptures that our desires are bonds, fettering us as well as others. But such bonds by themselves are so empty. It is only when we get to the point of letting the bird out of its cage that we can realize how free the bird has set us. Whatever we cage shackles us with desire whose bonds are stronger than those of iron chains. I tell you, sir, this is just what the world has failed to understand. They all seek to reform something outside themselves, but reform is wanted only in one's desires. Nowhere else, nowhere else. We think, he said, that we are our own masters when we get in our hands the object of our desire. But we are really our own masters only when we are able to cast out our desires from our minds. When we put all this into words, sir, I went on, it sounds like some bald-headed injunction, but when we realize even a little of it, we find it to be Amrita, which the gods have drunk and become immortal. We cannot see beauty till we let go our hold of it. It was Buddha who conquered the world, not Alexander. This is untrue when stated in dry prose. Oh, 
when shall we be able to sing it when shall all these most intimate truths of the universe overflow the pages of printed books and leap out in a sacred stream like the ganges from the gangotri i was suddenly reminded of my master's absence during the last few days and of my ignorance as to its reason i felt somewhat foolish as i asked him and where have you been all this while sir staying with panchu he replied indeed i exclaimed have you been there all these days yes i wanted to come to an understanding with the woman who calls herself his aunt she could hardly be induced to believe that there could be such an odd character among the gentlefolk as the one who sought their hospitality when she found i really meant to stay on she began to feel rather ashamed of herself mother said i you are not going to get rid of me even if you abuse me and as long as i stay panchu stays also for you see do you not that i cannot stand by and see this motherless little ones sent out into the streets she listened to my talks in this strain for a couple of days without saying yes or no this morning i found her tying up her bundles we are going back to brindaban she said let us have our expenses for the journey i knew she was not going to brindaban and also that the cost of her journey would be substantial so i have come to you the required cost shall be paid i said the old woman is not a bad sort my master went on musingly panchu was not sure of her caste and would not let her touch the water jar or anything at all of his so they were continually bickering when she found i had no objection to her touch she looked after me devotedly she's a splendid cook but all remnants of panchu's respect for me vanished to the last he had thought that i was at least a simple sort of person but here i was risking my caste without a qualm to win over the old woman for my purpose had i tried to steal a march on her by tutoring a witness for the trial that would have been a different matter tactics must be met by tactics but stratagem at the expense of orthodoxy is more than he can tolerate anyhow i must stay on a few days at panchu's even after the woman leaves for harish kundu may be up to any kind of devilry he has been telling his satellites that he was content to have furnished panchu with an aunt but i have gone the length of supplying him with a father he would like to see now how many fathers of his can save him we may or may not be able to save him i said but if we should perish in the attempt to save the country from the thousand and one snares of religion custom and selfishness which these people are busy spreading we shall at least die happy bimala's story
Who could have thought that so much would happen in this one life? I feel as if I have passed through a whole series of births. Time has been flying so fast. I did not feel it move at all till the shock came the other day. I knew there would be words between us when I made up my mind to ask my husband to banish foreign goods from our market. But it was my firm belief that I had no need to meet argument by argument, for there was magic in the very air about me. Had not so tremendous a man as Sandeep fallen helplessly at my feet like a wave of the mighty sea breaking on the shore? Had I called him? No, it was the summons of that magic spell of mine. And Amulia, poor dear boy, when he first came to me, how the current of his life flushed with color, like the river at dawn. Truly have I realized how a goddess feels when she looks upon the radiant face of her devotee. With the confidence begotten of these proofs of my power, I was ready to meet my husband like a lightning-charged cloud. But what was it that happened? Never in all these nine years have I seen such a faraway, distraught look in his eyes, like the desert sky, with no merciful moisture of its own, no color reflected, even from what it looked upon. I should have been so relieved if his anger had flashed out, but I could find nothing in him which I could touch. I felt as unreal as a dream, a dream which would leave only the blackness of night when it was over. In the old days, I used to be jealous of my sister-in-law for her beauty. Then I used to feel that providence had given me no power of my own, that my whole strength lay in the love which my husband had bestowed on me. Now that I had drained to the dregs the cup of power and could not do without its intoxication, I suddenly found it dashed to pieces at my feet, leaving me nothing to live for. How feverishly I had sat to do my hair that day. Oh, shame, shame on me, that is shame of it. My sister-in-law, when passing by, had exclaimed, Aha, Chotarani, your hair seems ready to jump off. Don't let it carry your head with it. And then the other day in the garden, how easy my husband found it to tell me that he set me free. But can freedom, empty freedom, be given and taken so easily as all that? It is like setting a fish free in the sky. For how can I move or live outside the atmosphere of loving care which has always sustained me? When I came to my room today, I saw only furniture, only the bedstead, only the looking-glass, only the clothes-rack, not the all-pervading heart which used to be there over all. Instead of it, there was freedom, only freedom, more emptiness. A dried-up watercourse with all its rocks and pebbles laid bare. No feeling, only furniture. When I had arrived at a state of utter bewilderment, 
wondering whether anything true was left in my life and whereabouts it could be, I happened to meet Sandeep again. Then life struck against life and the sparks flew in the same old way. Here was truth, impetus truth, which rushed in and overflowed all bounds, truth which was a thousand times truer than the Bararani with her maid, Thako and her silly songs, and all the rest of them who talked and laughed and wandered about. Fifty thousand, Sandeep had demanded. What is fifty thousand? cried my intoxicated heart. You shall have it. How to get it, where to get it, were minor points not worth troubling over. Look at me. Had I not risen, all in one moment, from nothingness to a height above everything? So shall all things come at my beck and call. I shall get it, get it, get it. There cannot be any doubt. Thus had I come away from Sandeep the other day. Then, as I looked about me, where was it? The tree of plenty. Why does this outer world insult the heart so? And yet, get it I must. How, I do not care. For sin there cannot be. Sin taints only the weak. I, with my Shakti, am beyond its reach. Only a commoner can be a thief. The king conquers and takes his rightful spoil. I must find out where the treasury is, who takes the money in, who guards it. I spent half the night standing in the outer veranda, peering at the row of office buildings. But how to get that fifty thousand rupees out of the clutches of those iron bars? If, by some mantram, I could have made all those guards fall dead in their places, I would not have hesitated. So pitiless did I feel. But while a whole gang of robbers seemed dancing a war dance within the whirling ruin of its rani, the great house of the rajas slept in peace. The gong of the watch sounded hour after hour, and the sky overhead placidly looked on. At last I sent for Amulia. Money is wanted for the cause, I told him. Can you not get it out of the treasury? Why not, said he, with his chest thrown out. Alas, had I not said why not to Sandeep just in the same way? The poor lad's confidence could rouse no hopes in my mind. How will you do it, I asked. The wild plans he began to unfold would hardly bear repetition outside the pages of a penny dreadful. No, Amulia, I said severely, you must not be childish. Very well, then, he said, let me bribe those watchmen. Where is the money to come from? I can loot the bazaar, he burst out, without blenching. Leave all that alone, I have my ornaments, they will serve. But, said Amulia, it strikes me that the cashier cannot be bribed. Never mind, there is another and simpler way. Where is that? Why need you hear it? It's quite simple. Still, I should like to know. Amulia fumbled in the pocket of his tunic and pulled out, first a small edition of the Gita, 
which he placed on the table, and then a little pistol, which he showed me, but said nothing further. Horror! It did not take him a moment to make up his mind to kill our good old cashier. To look at his frank, open face, one would not have thought him capable of hurting a fly. But how different were the words which came from his mouth? It was clear that the cashier's place in the world meant nothing real to him. It was a mere vacancy, lifeless, feelingless, with only stock phrases from the Gita, who kills the body, kills not. Whatever do you mean, Amulia? I exclaimed at length. Don't you know that the dear old man has got a wife and children and that he is? Where are we to find men who have no wives and children? He interrupted. Look here, Maharani, the thing we call pity is at bottom only pity for ourselves. We cannot bear to wound our own tender instincts, and so we do not strike at all. Pity indeed, the height of cowardice. To hear some deep phrases in the mouth of this mere boy staggered me. So delightfully, lovably immature was he, of that age when the good may still be believed in as good, of that age when one really lives and grows. The mother in me awoke. For myself there was no longer good or bad, only death, beautiful, alluring death. But to hear this stripling calmly talk of murdering an inoffensive old man as the right thing to do made me shudder all over the more clearly i saw that there was no sin in his heart the more horrible appeared to me the sin of his words i seemed to see the sin of the parents visited on the innocent child the sight of his great big eyes shining with faith and enthusiasm touched me to the quick. He was going in his fascination straight to the jaws of the python, from which once in there was no return. How was he to be saved? Why does not my country become for once a real mother, clasp him to her bosom and cry out, Oh, my child, my child, what profits it that you should save me, if so it be that I should fail to save you? I know, I know that all power on earth waxes great and the compact with Satan. But the mother is there, alone though she be, to contemn and stand against this devil's progress. The mother cares not for mere success, however great. She wants to give life to save life. My very soul today stretches out its hands in yearning to save this child. A while ago I suggested robbery to him. Whatever I may now say against it will be put down to a woman's weakness. They only love our weakness when it drags the world in its toils. You need do nothing at all, Amulia. I will see to the money, I told him finally. When he had almost reached the door, I called him back. Amulia, said I, I'm your elder sister. Today is not the brother's day according to the calendar, but all the days in the year are really brother's days. My blessing be with you. May God keep you always. 
These unexpected words from my lips took Amulia by surprise. He stood stock still for a time. Then, coming to himself, he prostrated himself at my feet in acceptance of the relationship and did me reverence. When he rose, his eyes were full of tears. O oh, little brother mine, I am fast going to my death. Let me take all your sin away with me. May no taint from me ever tarnish your innocence. I said to him, Let your offering of reverence be that pistol. What do you want with that, sister? I will practice death. Right, sister, our women also must know how to die, to deal death with which Amulia handed me the pistol. The radiance of his youthful countenance seemed to tinge my life with the touch of a new dawn. I put away the pistol within my clothes. May this reverence offering be the last resource in my extremity. The door to the mother's chamber in my woman's heart once opened, I thought it would always remain open. But this pathway to the supreme good was closed when the mistress took the place of the mother and locked it again. The very next day I saw Sandeep and madness, naked and rampant, danced upon my heart. What was this? Was this then my truer self? Never, I had never before known this shameless, this cruel one within me. The snake charmer had come, pretending to draw his snake from within the fold of my garment. But it was never there. It was his all the time. Some demon had gained possession of me, and what I am doing today is the play of his activity. It has nothing to do with me. This demon, in the guise of a god, had come with his ruddy torch to call me that day, saying, I'm your country, I'm your Sunday, I'm more to you than anything else of yours, Bande Mataram. And with folded hands I had responded, You are my religion, you are my heaven, whatever else is mine shall be swept away before my love for you, Bande Mataram. Five thousand, is it? Five thousand it shall be. You want it tomorrow? Tomorrow you shall have it. In this desperate orgy, that gift of five thousand shall be as the form of wine, and then for the writer's revel. The immovable world shall sway under our feet, fire shall flash from our eyes, a storm shall roar in our ears. What is or is not in front shall become equally dim, and then with tottering footsteps we shall plunge to our death. In a moment all fire will be extinguished, all ashes will be scattered, and nothing will remain behind. End of chapter 8